You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volts, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volts. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today, my guest is architectural historian and preservationist, Anna Markham. Welcome, Anna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Sure. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. My name is Anna. I am an architectural historian and preservationist. I do a lot of uh, research on modern residential housing, public programming, and sort of site interpretation. So um, I've also worked in business development for preservation firms, uh, basically jack of all trades, I would say, when it comes to preservation. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a pretty typical theme with preservationists. A lot of people have fingers in lots of pies. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. And I think it's one of the great strengths of preservation that you can really apply it to so many different fields or bodies of interest. It's always really malleable, the skills that you learn in Mm -hmm. graduate school for preservation. Mm -hmm. So speaking of of education, um, you have a Bachelor of Arts in Art History from Barnard College? Yes. Barnard College of Columbia University (laughs) and (laughs) a Master of Preservation Studies from Tulane. Can you talk about that? And like, did you know that you wanted to do preservation? Like when you went in for your bachelor's degree, is that where you wanted to go? Or did you kind of fall into it? I had no idea, actually. I, as I was doing my college search for undergrad, I was thinking about going to Tulane for undergrad. And I saw that they had a Master of Preservation Studies program. And I think my 17-year-old brain just filed that away for later Mm -hmm. because I remember thinking, wow, that's really fascinating. I didn't know that that was a thing that you could do. Mm -hmm. I chose to study art history because I have always loved going to museums. I've loved old paintings, old things. And I really wanted to learn about all of the different forces that shape a piece of artwork. It's not only the painter or the client, it's also the political and social culture around the painting um, and around the time. And so I thought that that would be really interesting to delve more deeply into. Mm -hmm. And also it's a great way to become a really excellent writer. The best thing about Barnard is they have some of the best faculty for teaching writing. Uh, One of the things that I really loved about the school when I applied was it seemed like every other graduate had a library of published works. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to be able to articulate my ideas about art history and interpretations about art history and thoughts about how we can make museums more accessible to everyone. I wanted to be able to articulate those in a way that um, people would find interesting and people could find applicable to a myriad of situations. So that's really why I decided to do art history. After that, I kind of thought with art history that I would either work at a magazine mm-hmm. or or at a gallery. A lot of people don't realize this, but most people who get art history degrees end up working really applying that liberal arts knowledge to a lot of magazine positions, publishing, um, really just knowing how to write and think and describe the visual world. Mm -hmm. Um, But also a lot of people end up going into uh, work in galleries, which I really enjoyed, but I didn't like that commercial art galleries only served a rarefied audience Mm -hmm. of collectors and people with money. And it didn't seem to really care about the public as a whole. And so I remembered the Master of Preservation Studies program at Tulane, filed away by very (laughs) smart 17-year-old me, and started looking into it. And I realized that there were actually a lot of jobs in historic preservation because I knew about the National Register of Historic Places. I didn't realize all of the other um, historic preservation regulations and other historic preservation sort of opportunities out there in the world. And so it seemed like a great way to further my education and 
really be able to apply that to a tangible job, as opposed to if you get a master's and PhD in art history, a lot of times the only real career path is, I'm going to be a professor of art history or mm -hmm. maybe a curator if you're very lucky. Mm -hmm. And with historic preservation, it seemed like a great way to really bring people in touch with their historic built environment and allow people to appreciate the aesthetics of the places where they live. And it really gave me an opportunity to, to create public programming for a, ver a wide variety of audiences. And mm -hmm. so that's why I decided to go into historic preservation. And that's sort of what I have tried to do with my career so far is make historic preservation and appreciation of the historic built environment something that everybody feels entitled to because the built environment is a part of our environment. Mm -hmm. And so not only, you know, it's not only just nature and what God put on this green earth, but it is everything that we've built and created. And every single small town in America has one building that everybody loves. Mm -hmm. People appreciate what's around them, and I want to honor that appreciation and show why it's important. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I always like hearing people's answers to that question because... It, it everybody has a different reason mm -hmm. and a different thing that they that they love and and why they came into it from whatever direction they came mm -hmm. from. So mm -hmm. I always love hearing people's reasons for being a preservationist. Yeah, it was really actually a very logical. It was a very logical transition from art history to historic preservation. Um, because I did my undergraduate thesis on public programming at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and their attempts to make the museum more accessible and less exclusionary mm -hmm. for a wide variety of audiences. Unfortunately, the thesis found that they haven't quite cracked that code yet. But what I learned in doing that was a lot about how how you can activate historic sites. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that research in art history, I think that it really gave me a lot of ideas on how historic preservation can use contemporary art and public art to activate historic sites. Mm -hmm. And that's something that um, really, it really goes hand in hand. And being able to describe the visual world is such a great skill. I'm very happy that I studied art history and super happy that I'm in uh, <laughs> preservation now. It's been really, really fun. Mm -hmm. So when, when you were a graduate student in Tulane, you were among the first group of students to receive the Anne and Frank Masson Graduate Research Fel Fellowship. And I don't know, was Anne still teaching when you were there, or was she retired? She was retired, but she frequently served on a lot of our committees mm -hmm. um, when we would present projects that we did in studio, or she would come into some of our architectural history courses and do a lecture on, um, you know, rotten cast iron and a lot of other stuff that she's an amazing expert in. Yeah. She, <laughs> honestly, Anne Masson is my preservation icon. I love that woman. Yeah. Um, she, one, she's unbelievably intelligent and well-versed on the minutia of New Orleans historic buildings, especially in the French Quarter. And she can just speak at length on anything. And also she's extremely stylish. Yes, yes. And <laughs> that is always a bonus point to yeah. me. And I just thought that she was, she's really, really interesting. And I was very happy to be um, the first student to receive that fellowship. The fellowship was really an opportunity. It was a travel grant. Mm -hmm. And it was an opportunity to create a research project that compared an architectural tradition of Europe to an architectural tradition of the United States and how that diaspora really occurred. So the project that I proposed was studying artist designed stained glass in, um, in religious spaces. I've uh, since one of the big things that I was interested in when I applied to the Master of Preservation Studies program was religious spaces. My National Register nomination, which is a project you do with Laura Blocker in the um, History of North American Architecture course, 
my National Register nomination was First Christian Church in Hammond, Louisiana, designed by John Desmond. A beautiful, international-style church, and it's absolutely unbelievable, amazing woodworking. And so I took what I learned about the design of religious spaces and really thought about how we can best preserve these and what things make certain religious spaces more ready to be preserved than others. And I had heard about the Matisse Chapel in the south of France. And I started thinking more and more about other artists whose works were, you know, at the Louvre or at MoMA or the Met or what have you. How many of these other artists have worked in architecture and what is the state of those buildings? Um, well, it turns out the south of France has a little sort of just collection of artist design chapels. So not only is there the Matisse Chapel, there is the Picasso's Chapel of War and Peace. There, there is a lovely Jean Cocteau Fisherman's Chapel in, again, in the south of France. What is the, I have to remember the exact city. Oh, Villefranche-sur-Mer. <laughs> my lovely French accent for all of you out there. And it is at the Fisherman's Chapel, and it's basically on a historic building, and he has painted these murals okay. on all of the walls. And it really retains the historic architectural footprint and also a lot of the built-in moldings, um, little niches, that sort of thing. And so that was a great way to preserve that space. Um, by including the Jean Cocteau murals. And that mm -hmm. was a gift that he gave to the fishermen of that village. And now the fishermen's union there continues to keep up the the, uh, the chapel, and it looks amazing. There is also the Chagall Museum on um, in the south of France. And Chagall, he did a great deal of stained glass, um, religious stained glass throughout Europe, especially for cathedrals that lost their stained glass w windows during World War One and World War Two, mm -hmm. And he replaced a lot of the windows at uh, Rheims Cathedral okay. in the north of France. And so really what I found from studying these is that I knew already from my work in galleries that art gets conserved a lot sooner than buildings do. Yeah. Generally speaking, at the gallery where I worked, we would sometimes end up having to send things to conservators when they were around 20 or 30 years old. Mm -hmm. In preservation, we generally don't even start to look at buildings until they're about 50 years old. Right. So including this sort of artist design space just created an opportunity to do more regular maintenance of the buildings, which all in all, created better historic preservation of the space. Right. And so I compared really the preservation methods there, the site interpretation methods there, with similar sites in the United States. Texas is home also to a great deal of artist-designed chapels. Um, the Rothko Chapel is the most famous one. There is the James Terrell Sky Space, which is a Quaker meeting house. There's also a, a newer a newer one at the University of Texas, Austin, the Ellsworth Kelly Chapel. And he claims it's not a religious space, mm -hmm. but it is in the cruciform plan. It has works in there that are like the, the Stations of the Cross, but mm -hmm. it's really abstracted. And so there's sort of this new opportunity there of these uh, religious spaces being treated solely as works of art, but they're all in phenomenal condition. I mean, the Ellsworth Kelly Austin building, that's what it's called, the, the, the pseudo chapel, it's called Austin. Mm -hmm. It is brand new, but that is going to be kept in impeccable condition because it is a work of art. Right. And there's another... another artist design church in um, Union, it's called the Union Chapel, it's in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. It was commissioned by the Rockefeller family. There's also a Matisse stained glass window there. Wow. And a series of Chagall stained glass windows. And the building is, it's really 
the building itself isn't too terribly consequential. It's just sort of like a neo-Gothic, tiny little church. But it's in such impeccable condition. And it's I think it was built in the 1920s. It's in, in impeccable condition because they have to upkeep these stained glass windows. Right. And so what I ended up doing on my presentation when I returned was talking about how infusing contemporary art or fine art in general with historic spaces activates them. It makes them more adept to site interpretation. And it also it also just incentivizes regular maintenance of the building, which is mm-hmm. the best thing that can happen for preservation. Like we wouldn't be necessary to for like building conservation or any of that so if people just maintained their buildings. Right. The biggest lie in construction materials is that something is no maintenance. Like there's maintenance on everything. Yeah. <laughs> and if there's not, it means when it breaks, the whole thing has the to be replaced. The whole thing breaks. Yes, yeah. yes. Which is you know, that's those windows, but that's, we've, we've talked about windows a lot before on yeah. the podcast. So. Windows are like the, the hot button issue of preservation. <laughs> and well, like pro tip, um, most of the energy you lose in a historic structure is through improper insulation. The mm-hmm. windows are really inconsequential, not inconsequential, but that's not the big issue. Right. Um, big issue is insulation. And also, if you're worried about being green, there's a big carbon footprint when you make something brand new. Right. And yeah. nobody thinks about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Of course. Later on a little bit. But, it, you know, it's like like my friend Sarah says, she's, she's a window conservator. That's what she does. She was on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And she's like, putting new windows in an old building without addressing the other issues it's like putting a what did she say like a steel door on a on a animal pen or something yeah like it, it's like it doesn't it doesn't really it's minimal yeah you know it it uh, I don't know yeah well it's like <laughs> if there's a hole if there's a hole in the fence and you put a steel door on it it doesn't matter right, it doesn't like work. it's still gonna escape yeah <laughs> okay you did an you did some other work as a graduate student you were an intern at the historic new is it just called historic new england is that yes it's called okay. historic new england okay mm-hmm. i wasn't sure if it was like program or anything like that and doing survey work mm-hmm. um yes. so can you talk about about that uh, what you're doing as an intern there yes well i was lucky enough to intern at historic new england um, with Carissa Demore and Sally Zimmerman, who run the preservation easements department there. And what I was hired to do was to survey all of the mid-century modern houses um, that had a connection to architects that they already held easements on houses for or important modernist uh, New England architects. Uh, so really what I was doing is I was looking at modern houses to find hopefully the architect, the homes that the architects designed for themselves mm-hmm. or just really important examples or intact examples of their work so that as opposed to waiting for people to come to historic New England to donate an easement, we would get in touch with them and let them know that easements existed um, because a lot of people think of an easement as only something that you can do on a uh, piece of the natural environment. A lot of people don't understand that it can also be applied to buildings. Um, yeah, can you give us just a real quick definition when you say easement? Because I haven't really talked about that much before, mm-hmm. exactly how it works in this case with a historic building. Yes, well, um, for an easement, basically it allows in perpetuity for a historic preservation organization or whoever the easement holder is to sort of look after the building and ensure that sort of the stipulations of the easement, maintaining historic features, historic finishes, um, not doing any kind of outrageous changes to the building unless you get approval from the organization. It is the toughest preservation regulation. It's really great for extremely important historic buildings. Um, And so essentially what you do is you give an organization the permission to sort of regulate what can and cannot be done to the house. 
Um, most places only do exterior easements where you maintain the historic integrity of the exterior, but it doesn't necessarily apply to the interior. Historic New England's easements are very, very detailed, and they do apply to the interior, interior finishes in some cases, and the overall layout and footprint of the home. Okay. And with an easement, cool thing about that is it's not like the easement's on the house as long as you live there. It's on that piece of property forever. forever. No matter who owns it. No matter who owns it. And so if you are looking for a way to preserve your house forever or preserve a piece of property forever, the best way is to put an easement on it. But easements also are not inexpensive. Most organizations require that you leave an endowment mm-hmm. um, to the organization because to manage have, it. Yeah, to manage it. You yeah. have to compensate the people who will be driving untold amounts of hours to go to the property and make sure that everything is okay. You also have to answer questions when the homeowner is getting in touch with you asking if they can you know, put in XYZ cabinet or uh, what do you think of this paint color for the exterior of the home? You have to provide that sort of consultation. So that's why the um, endowment is important, but also it can be a little bit of a barrier for some people wanting to put easements on their properties. So that's really what an easement is. It's the strictest form of historic preservation that you can put on a building in the United States. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's what you were you were surveying buildings to see if you could find more for this organization to yes. put easements on. Yes, okay. yes, and particularly they wanted to expand their modern residential properties portfolio of easements because in New England uh, you have a ton of beautiful colonial buildings, and mm-hmm. most of the easements they hold are on those colonial buildings and like the federal uh, mansions and Georgian estates, that sort of thing. And they have, I'm trying to think, the the most famous modern property that they have is the Gropius House. Okay. And so they operate that as a house museum um, because Walter Gropius's widow left essentially the house and all of the objects in it to historic New England. So um, they wanted to build out their collection and also their advocacy to include more modern structures because New England has so many great modern houses. Yeah. And it also has a very great regional style. It's some of the earliest modern homes in the United States. It's just a really great place with a wealth of information. So what I was putting together for them was a digital survey of modern residential properties throughout the state and also in upstate New York, Connecticut, those sorts of places. I worked frequently out of, I I looked at the architects who were at um, the Harvard Graduate School of Design at the time, um, which is really where all of the Bauhaus ideals were brought over to the United States because Um, Walter Gropius and Marcel Breuer, when they fled Germany right before World War II, they were hired by Harvard to um, sort of head up the architecture school there. And Mm -hmm. they brought over the Bauhaus method of teaching architecture and design. And so there was a huge collection of architects in the area that um, suddenly began building in this style. Um, and so you have a lot of people sort of spinning out from that. There are also uh, was great um, modern architecture coming out of the MIT program as well. Mm-hmm. And so you have right by the Gropius house, a collection of other homes designed by Gropius and Breuer in the same in the same area. And so what we did was I did research on, the integrity of those buildings and collected information about the people who owned those buildings so we could begin a working relationship with them to see if they would like to donate an easement on these properties. Some other really fascinating architects that I surveyed and that was um, one is the Architects Collaborative. Okay. It might be collective. (laughs) 
Okay, Architects Collaborative, yes. <laughs> um, it was founded in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1946, and this was out of a collection of Walter Gropius and Marcel Breuer's students. And Walter Gropius sort of acted as a kind of advisor to this Architects Collaborative and um, firm. And the firm existed for a long time, I think until um, the early 90s. Um, but one of the things that they're really well known for, especially in Massachusetts, is um, their sort of idealized suburban community of Six Moon Hill. Okay. And Six Moon Hill is an really a very early, a lot of people call it a hipster utopia or hipster suburbia, mm-hmm. because it's all of these like very intelligent academics and architects. They all lived in this neighborhood sort of coming together for uh, communal living. The homes had modular elements, so even though they all have a distinctly different style, they include a lot of the same features. Okay. And so they were all set up as um, sort of neighborhood associations, and the Six Moon Hill Neighborhood Association is still sort of in operation. So that neighborhood is extremely well-preserved, and a lot of um, the architects... Uh, lived there their entire lives and were leaving sort of were, were either leaving by selling the house and you know as they're older moving into a nursing home or something like that they would contact us about easements and so there are also other people that live in that neighborhood that weren't architects and uh, so since the neighborhood association was still intact they had to renew it in the 1970s the preservation in this neighborhood is really, really amazing because mm-hmm. you had to go through the neighborhood association to make any distinct changes to your building. Um, and the success of Six Moon Hill, since it was such a collaborative community, they I, I believe they have a community pool that like everybody knew each other. Um, they were all kind of working together and living collaboratively in this place because it was so successful, they created another neighborhood pretty close to it called Five Fields. And unfortunately, Five Fields is nowhere near as well preserved Mm -hmm. because in the 70s they elected not to continue their neighborhood association. And so a lot of the issue with preservation in New England, because the land values are so high, Mm A lot of people will buy a smaller modern house because most modern houses are less than 2,500 square feet. Yeah. And so they don't necessarily want to get rid of the architectural gem they've purchased, but they want to build a giant cube right (laughs) next to it, which completely changes the integrity of completely changes the integrity of the building. Right. And so it's really interesting to have those two neighborhoods so close to each other because you can really see the impacts of sorting, sort of just letting people do whatever they want to their homes and having a neighborhood association, which people who live in that neighborhood are elected to and serve on. And so it's sort of everybody keeping each other accountable to keep the neighborhood really well-preserved mm-hmm. and um, within the same style. So that's something that I found to be really interesting. So we did a lot of research on that. Another big portion of the easement research was on New England architect Eleanor Raymond. She is a female architect, and she graduated from the Cambridge School of Architecture, which was created specifically for women. And um, she did a great deal of residential design and honestly adaptive reuse Mm -hmm. of historic structures and they didn't have any easements on any of her properties and so um, they really wanted to find some of these like historic adaptive reuse homes that she'd done um, and try to get an easement on them before the interior was lost Mm -hmm. Um, because her most famous work the sister the the ooh. Her most famous work, the home that she designed for her sister, mm-hmm. um, was demolished in 2006. Right. Um, I, I read the uh, what you wrote mm-hmm. about her and how she had 
was it like 17 modern buildings and 11 of them are gone now or something yes, like that? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Most of them, most of them are gone. Um, the Rachel Raymond house is actually the oldest modern house in New England. Mm-hmm. That's frequently a credit given to Walter Gropius. His house was built in 1938. Mm-hmm. This Eleanor Raymond house that she built and designed for her sister in Belmont, Massachusetts, was completed in 1931, I believe. Oh, okay. Yes, 1931. Okay. And so it was really based on sort of like the Bauhaus ideas and style because she had just gotten back from sort of a, a trip learning about the sort of modernist tenants there. And she'd been employing other sort of modernist design aspects, but this was her first purely modern building. And it was a beautiful home. There are still a lot of archival images available. She had a really great partnership with House Beautiful at the time, and a lot of her works were featured in that magazine. And so that's been a great loss for modern architecture in New England. And part of the reason we were researching the easements was to ensure that losses like that didn't occur again. Since land value is so ridiculous there, a lot of times people will buy a piece of land that has a house on it that could be truly amazing if people would just put a little bit of you know, preservation and work into it. Mm-hmm. But they generally will just buy it, demolish the house because it's like a quarter of what is being valued by the tax assessor on right. that land um, and then build something else. So it's a really pressing issue, especially in that part of the country. Mm-hmm. So that's really what I was doing was just picking out these significant modern properties and trying to figure out a way to reach the owners to consider donating an easement on them mm-hmm. before they end up selling the house again. Okay. So after after graduation, after you finished your master's degree, you moved to Los Angeles, uh, which is an interesting move, <laughs> <laughs> um, to do business development work with private historic preservation consulting firms. So I know a lot of people don't see L.A. as having, like, a great deal of historic stuff. I mean, I, I you know, there's a lot of mid-century stuff, mm-hmm. obviously, out there, which is amazing. But what, why did you want to practice there in California? I was really interested in practicing preservation in California because, really, some of their oldest stuff is, generally speaking, like, academic revivals and... Art Deco architecture, that sort of thing. And so the bulk of their architecture is architecture from the recent past. Um, Mid-century is finally getting the recognition it deserves in the architecture community and and, um, throughout historic preservation. But there's also a lot to learn about sort of architecture of the more recent past. We're moving into preserving Mm -hmm. postmodernism, a lot of uh, brutalism, late modernism. And so it's really interesting to see sort of the, the best practices for preservation of those, those structures developed. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to be in a place where sort of I would be at the forefront of modern and contemporary preservation. Also, I wanted to be in California because they have some of the strictest environmental regulations in the Mm -hmm. country and um, the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, it does not just regulate the natural environment and the air quality, it regulates the historic built environment. Okay. And so pretty much every development that happens, if a concerned community member decides to invoke CEQA, you have to do a historic evaluation of the building. And in Los Angeles in particular, their Department of Historic Resources has really strict guidelines for any structure over 50 years of age. So you need to get a historic assessment before you can move forward on any of that. And so I wanted to see what those very strict preservation regulations and guidelines looked like and worked like in practice. And it was really, really fascinating. And it's interesting to see how that's applied so seriously to vernacular modernism, 
late modernism, that sort of thing. I can't tell you how much research I did on gas stations. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Like, a a great deal of which are actually pretty significant. um, Because it's one of the first American cities designed almost entirely around the use of the automobile. Right. And you can really see that in the construction of it. Like, the city is meant to be viewed from a car. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really fascinating. So I wanted to be there learning sort of how to work with these strict preservation guidelines, how that has turned into an industry there, and how, through business development, how can you essentially sell this to people as something that they need to pay a historic preservation consultant for? Mm-hmm. Well, one, it has to be somebody who is qualified by the Secretary of the Interior Standards mm-hmm. for architectural history for most reports. So number one, that's the main reason why they would have to hire you. Um, number two is if they're interested in sort of capitalizing on that very chic mid-century modern ideal, they want a historic preservation consultant to let them know that they're not destroying anything of of particular particularly important historic character. Mm-hmm. Basically what we do is make sure that... So you have to meet the standards. You're helping them make sure they're not destroying anything. Yeah, we're helping them make sure they're not destroying anything. And we're making sure that, especially if they're in a historic district or, you know, if they have a historic building, that um, they're meeting the requirements set forth by the city and the state. Okay. Um, we also, I also did a lot of business development for people trying to do Mills Act. Mills Act, basically, it freezes your property taxes. It's the only, it's not really a state historic tax credit in California, but it's the closest thing to it. Okay. So that's basically a contract with your local government that you will perform regular maintenance on your historic structure, and you get a significant reduction in property taxes, which in California is a huge deal. Right. So a lot of people would sort of pay for that. One of the most interesting and troubling things I learned throughout this process was with this amount of regulation, everybody was kind of selling preservation as a hurdle to be conquered. Yeah. And not a real asset to the value of the property Mm -hmm. or a real asset to the community. And again, I think that the historic quality of buildings and sort of especially potential apartment buildings and office buildings, people are looking for a space that has character. Yeah. And the fact that so many people would come to us just being like, we just need to get the okay to do this. Like, it's a huge pain. I don't want to deal with it. Like, historic preservation is just making things cost more. It, it's not true. And um, there really is value in that sort of historic quality and that design quality. And so I think that it's kind of walking a tightrope when it comes to sort of having intense preservation regulations and making sure that people know that this is this is something that's meant to help their property have more value and to keep right. it in better condition. And I think a lot of this came about in really nitpicking very, very small features yeah. of buildings that, to be quite blunt, weren't extremely important. Like, Something as on like an inconsequential, not inconsequential, but on a building that's not like a famous home or a famous building that's just historic and cute and we want to keep it as such, really like just hammering someone with violations for changing a paint color or doing unapproved work that didn't really alter the, the home or the building in a bad way just gives... It gives preservation a bad name. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's something that I saw a lot of in uh, California. So it's going to be interesting to see how they mitigate that sort of bad reputation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've done a lot of writing and research, which I, I read some of it on your website, about modern residential preservation and its relationship with new green construction. Green, mm-hmm. quotation, green. Yes. Can you share your thoughts 
on on all of this and and why do you think it's important to preserve modern residential architecture i think it's important to preserve modern residential architecture because it is the greatest percentage of our building stock in the united states right now also we're kind of coming upon a housing crisis of sorts especially in more densely populated regions of the country So it's important that we retain this housing stock. Also, it's culturally, to the development of the United States and American culture, very significant for us because the United States really came into its own during the mid-century. And these homes represent that newfound, distinctly American identity. I think it's important for green construction because a lot of people, when they're determining whether or not a building is green or whether or not it's good for the environment, they are only looking at the utility bill that they receive. Mm -hmm. So if their heating, cooling, electricity, what have you, is slightly higher, they're like, oh, this building is bad for the environment. That's not the case. That is a very small sliver of a building's impact on the environment. In the preservation program at Tulane, we are taught the greenest building is the building that's already built. And that is true. Um, The average lifespan for a building in the United States is around 30, 32 years. That's ridiculous. It's not good. No. It's not good. (laughs) And that's due to a restructuring of the tax code Mm -hmm. in the 1950s at mid-century that incentivized sort of construction in early stages of a building's life as opposed to maintenance later on. Mm -hmm. And so you see then this real obsession with demolition and creating new buildings and demolition is progress. This is the time that we uh, we lose Penn Station. Mm-hmm. This is when the preservation movement really gets rolling because of urban renewal, um, that sort of thing. Basically, demolition is put on this pedestal as being the only way forward to progress. Some, if it's new, it's good. If it's old, it's bad. Right. Again, not necessarily the case. I'm not against new buildings, but... I am against unnecessary new buildings. (laughs) (laughs) And so a lot of people think now that uh, mid-century homes are, um, since they're not like a beautiful Victorian home or, you know, something very ornate with hand-carved detailing, that sort of thing, that it's not really worth saving, especially if it's just a standard ranch house. Right. So what I wanted to do with my work was show ways that we can have, I guess, slightly more lax preservation rules on, or preservation guidelines on just sort of everyday modern structures Mm -hmm. to incentivize people fixing up those structures as opposed to building something new or demolishing and building something new. Um, Because, again, in the Tulane program, we work a lot with the MS. R.E.D. at Tulane, which is the Masters in Sustainable Real Estate Development. And from them, we learned that even if you build a new construction to the highest green standards, um, meets every LEED certification, all of that stuff, that building will not become carbon neutral for about 80-ish years. Right. After after the construction process, because the construction process creates pollution. The creation of those materials creates pollution. And so a lot of people really see, it's easy to just see being green as a measure only by your utility bill. Right. And that's just not the best way to go about it. So I'm working on trying to make sure that people know that and think about that Mm -hmm. um even in like the green new deal for instance one of the big scare tactics some people are saying they're like they're gonna knock down all your old buildings i'm like that's not what's gonna happen um because that would be a massive pollution yeah situation well i think i think the the thing that people don't think or don't know or don't think about and this is something i've had discussions with friends of mine that own houses here in New Orleans and 
And the thing about these old buildings, especially the really old ones, like the mm-hmm. shotgun houses and, and the, the French style, you know, single room or double room front to back, is those houses were not designed to be sealed. Yes. And to be heated and cooled mechanically. Yeah. And if you use the building in the way it was originally designed by opening windows mm-hmm. and letting air flow through, and they are actually quite good at cooling themselves without a ton of air conditioning. Exactly. And so this idea that you have to put in new windows and you have to sort of, I like to call it hermetically sealing houses like we do nowadays mm-hmm. it doesn't work with old buildings yes that's not how they were built they weren't built to to do that mm-hmm. and i think if more people realized that maybe we're slightly more comfortable with using less air conditioning yes. in the summertime <laughs> they, they would know that these houses were designed to cool themselves that's how yes. they were built and and you know i think that that might be that might be part of it there's like a a disconnect there mm-hmm. for people and it's not I don't know I just have this talk with friends you yes, know people yes. that own houses I'm like just let me let me talk to you for like 10 minutes trust me <laughs> <laughs> see if I can change your mind about what you're thinking about doing to this house mm-hmm. and I can tell you even even in our apartment it, our electric bill is not that high yeah it's really not for you know the amount of space that we have and and we certainly are not in the best shape as far as like windows and stuff mm-hmm. in here. So uh, I don't know. That's just something that comes up to me when I think about this whole thing. Yes, I, I've spoken with people about the same issue, especially in New Orleans, because it really like the houses were designed for air to move through, not to seal it in. And I think it's best with historic built historic buildings to really lean into the strengths of that structure. Right. Don't try and make it something that it's not. That's the best way to really have a good relationship with your historic home or historic building is acknowledging the limitations of the building and also taking a new look at its possible advantages. Because wouldn't it be great? Uh, I mean, for several months out of the year in New Orleans, I think the climate is great. Um, If you have a shotgun home, just don't do the air con those those months but also i love air conditioning so i I can't really like i i'm one of those people i want to be in an ice box when i sleep Mm -hmm. so i understand it i understand the frustration but also just you know word to the wise your utility bill isn't the only marker of how green you are right there we had i had a previous guest and and i i feel really bad because i'm blanking on who it was but we kind of talked about the same thing. Like, don't don't fight against, like you just said, don't fight against how the building was created. Mm-hmm. There was a reason why these buildings were designed and built the way that they were with the materials mm-hmm. that they were made. And when you when you push against that, that's when you have those problems. That's when you get moisture issues and yeah. rot issues and things like that because you're applying a modern ideal or a modern material to something that it's incompatible with mm-hmm. and and that is going to create problems and and it's not it's not that people have bad intentions when they do stuff like that it's just maybe they just don't know yeah and that's what we're here for <laughs> exactly exactly and i think also as preservationists we need to remember that most people, when they make big mistakes with a historic building, they are not trying to destroy it. They are doing what their contractor has told them or what a friend has told them or what have you. Like, for instance, my, my parents love historic buildings. And when I first started preservation school, I was talking to my mom about the windows. And she's like, oh, but everybody says you need vinyl windows. And she knows so much about Victorian homes. Right. And so it was really interesting to see somebody who actually is pretty well attuned to the issue just sort of receive misinformation from, you know, basically just the entire construction industry parroting that to people. 
And so I think a lot of the, oh my God, what did this person do to this house? How dare you? We need to come at it from a place of empathy and compassion. (laughs) Even though we might be thinking, dear God, who told you that was a good idea? But it really, I think that preservation needs to be less punishing in general and more proactive. Mm Mm-hmm. And educational. Educational. That's a, a big thing for me in in my work and a big part of the reason why I got into historic preservation. I'm really interested in public programming and education and advocacy. And most people, when you talk to them a little bit about preservation, they they want to do well. They want to preserve these buildings. I've never told somebody what I do and had them go, oh, God, like, how dare you? How yeah. dare you? you know, preserve our cute little main street. Um, most of the time they're like, that's so cool. Like tell, how do you, how do you work in that? What do you do exactly? And so it's something that I think most people in the community are very, very invested in. And we just need to remember that most mistakes truly are mistakes and it's not malice. (sighs) Yeah. It's not malice. It's not malice. Just, you know, compassion and empathy. (laughs) Except, 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 for those occasional companies that do come in and, and demolish things overnight without telling anybody. Yes. That, however, is malice. That is definitely malice. <laughs> definitely malice. I'm more so talking about individual homeowners. Right. Because <laughs> I've seen, like, sometimes people just get unnecessarily penalized for that sort of thing. But, yeah, like, the whole demolition under cover of night thing is truly ridiculous there's a special place for those people yeah that's, that's all i have to say hard agree hard <laughs> agree you definitely i mean just talk to your community about it like it'll it will work out well yeah. it will work out well and i genuinely think that buildings are more marketable when they have an edge or a history or some sort of significance because these brand new super shiny structures especially if they're built by the kind of people who are going to demolish a bunch of houses under cover of night, they're not built with the best materials. Right. It's going to look real bad in five years. <laughs> yeah. Um, the town where I grew up is a college town, and so we have a lot of uh, development of really not well-constructed apartment buildings like that. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I've li- I lived there for the first 20 years of my life. In five years, those things look terrible. Yeah. And nobody wants to live there. So it's important to think, like, are we building to last or are we building to get that first round of leases and that first round of rent? Right. And that's where we really need to evaluate our uh, priorities when it comes to new construction and preservation and how these things can work together. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guests' information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.